Take your Bibles, if you brought them, hope you brought them, and turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to get there in a moment. Acts chapter 1. Um, as I've stated many times uh, from this uh, platform and in my ministry, uh, I am a child of the 80s. And all the 80s kids said, amen. Like, there was no greater time in the history of the world to grow up. Because that's the time I grew up, all right? And so uh, I was a child of the 80s. And back in the 80s, we used to do this thing where um, we would um, get around on a weeknight and sit in our living room and watch television together. It's just crazy that you ever heard of something like this, all right? Now, here's the thing. We didn't have very many channels. I lived out in the suburbs of Dyersburg near a place called Rowellen, all right? And so we only had the antenna on the top of the house, which is kind of crazy because now I only get local channels through an antenna. I don't, you know, I've cut the cable, all that stuff. I'm back, back to my roots is what I am, all right? And so there used to be only like four or five choices to watch. And here's the really crazy thing. Are you ready for this? There used to be shows on television the whole family could watch together. Alright. And so there was one show that was appointment viewing for me. I told my mom and dad we had to watch it every week, whether they wanted to watch it or not. We watched it and we would get together as a family. It's one of those things, you know, as I think about this show and I look back on this show, I think back to a time that just seemed simpler and less rushed. We'd come home. We didn't have a whole lot of homework, you know. We'd sit around. We'd eat supper. And then we'd go sit in front of the TV. My dad had the biggest TV you could buy at that time, 25 inches Woo! Right? And we would sit there and we watch this show and it would come on every, and you never knew. Like this wasn't like you could get on the internet and find out what was coming on that night. But this particular show, um, had three hosts in it. They were Fran Tarkington, Kathy Lee Crosby, and John Davidson. Anybody know the show I'm talking about? That's incredible. How many of you remember That's Incredible? Amen in the house of the Lord today, right? And out, what would happen is they would come on and they would tell you, preview what was coming on for the night. And it would be, you know, weird stuff. People looked weird. Or there were really cool kids that could do stuff the kids shouldn't do. Or animals or something really adventurous. So they would do death-defying stunts. Like, uh, or for some, you know, some of these things you're like, what in the world am I thinking? Why is that emblazoned in my mind? Some guy um, grabbed onto the uh, a bit with his teeth on the back of a truck and like slid on a metal uh, container down a hill as a truck was pulling him. And I was just, this is the most awesome thing ever. Dad, can we go try that? No, you cannot, all right? So you had stuff like that. You had animals that would do crazy stuff. Um, you had, like, the, I remember they showed the Rubik's Cube Championship. And then you never knew what you were really watching or what would come of it. But I remember this uh, because he was my age. And I was watching one day, and they had this kid on there that was really good at golf. This five-year-old kid that could really play golf. And they said, we want to introduce you to Eldrick Tiger Woods. Like, he was on That's Incredible back, like, in 19... 19- 83, all right? And so it's this amazing show that would do all this death-defying stunts. And I, every week I would hear my mom and dad. It, it was a simpler time. We were less cynical about things on television. We were less like, well, how did they do that? Or that's a trick. Like I, every week I would hear my mom say or dad say, I would have never believed that if I didn't see it with my own eyes. Right? You ever one of those moments like, I wouldn't have believed that if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. Eyes. That's one of the reasons that I think our culture is so kind of um, in the sports. It's because there's always a chance you're going to see a one-handed catch falling backwards. 
or a ball hit off of somebody's helmet and catch it and run into the end zone or um, a guy hit a home run and come back in a way that you never imagined. We love kind of the, the Olympic stories of people that shouldn't even have a chance of being there that are now competing for a medal. We love that kind of, I wouldn't have believed it if I didn't see it with my own eyes. Here's what I want to do. Today I want to introduce you to a verse that I wouldn't believe if I didn't see it with my own eyes. Like it's one of those verses that I read in the Bible and I'm like, I don't necessarily yell out, that's incredible. But I look at it and I think, if that, if I didn't see that in my own eyes, I wouldn't believe it's in there because I have a hard time believing that to be true. Okay? In fact, it's not just a, a verse that's in the Bible. It's a verse that's in the Bible in quotation marks. Which means somebody said it. And this person said he was speaking with the authority of God. And it's not just a verse in the Bible that has quotation marks. It's a verse in the Bible that has quotation marks. And if your Bible has red lettering, this is in red. Which means what? Jesus said it. So it's not just something that's in the Bible someplace over there. You go, wow, I can't hardly believe that. This is something that Jesus said that's in the Bible. And I believe that it's in the Bible. And especially in the Bible, Jesus said it. I believe everything in the Bible is true. Then I believe that Jesus said that the Son of God, who I believe is God incarnate, died for my sins, rose again. He said it. Then we got to believe it. Amen. But look what he says. You know this, some of you. John 14. We're going to just be in 12. It says 12 through 14, just 12. I assure you, he's saying, I guarantee it. Lock it down. The one who believes in me will do the, also the works that I do. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. Like, let's just talk for a second, alright? What, what are the works that Jesus did? What did he do? He healed people, right? Anybody done that this week? Like, laid your hand on somebody? What else did he do? Who what? Walked on water, right? Anybody done that lately? Change water into wine? Anybody done that? You're not going to admit it in a Baptist church if you have, but anybody done that lately? Raise people from the dead. Now look at this, alright? Just, I know you've read this in the Bible and you just kind of read over stuff, but look at what it says. He said, the one who believes in me. Anyone who believes in me. Now, if we took a poll in this room, if I just said, hey, how many of you believe in Jesus? We're not going to do that. But my guess is that we would have a high percentage, like landslide, like almost unanimous. And he says, if you are the one who believes in me, so that's you, you, you will do the works that I do. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and he, she, you, will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. And I'm going to tell you, that's one of those verses that I look at and I say, <laughs> like, Jesus, like, this is the one, if I was sitting there, I'd be the Peter of that moment. You know, Peter always sticking his foot in his mouth. I'd been like, Jesus, I, I, I just, I just don't think you know what you're talking about there. Like, We've seen you like talk and the wind stops. We've seen you say, get up. And a dead person who'd been dead four days got up. We've seen you go to somebody that had an issue of blood for 12 years and said, stop. She touched you and is done. 
To a guy that hadn't been able to walk in 38 years and said, get up, get your mat, let's go. And it's done. We saw you spit on the ground and you made the greatest medical solution in history. Cured blindness. And you say we're going to do greater than that? And sometimes when you read this and you read commentaries, they say, oh, he's just talking about we'll do more. Like, like what he means here is that we're going to do more. There are more of us that when he leaves, the Holy Spirit can come. And there is some truth in that. The range of activity is more. Because Jesus primarily stayed in Judea, Galilee. He didn't venture very far outside of a little circle in the midst of the Middle East. And so the reality is the spread of what he is doing will go to more places. By the end of the first century, it had reached most of the known world of that time. And so the extent of it is more. But the word in the original language doesn't let us get off the hook with just saying it's broader it says that in type and in comparison what we will do will be better than what jesus did now i just stare at it and go what how now i'm going to answer some of that question as we go through the sermon but i will tell you this sometimes in understanding this we forget that everything jesus did in his miracles was a foreshadowing or leading to a place where we would be able to do something greater than what he was doing in his miracles. Because think about this, okay? The guy that he uh, healed of blindness, the uh, lame people that he told to walk, um, Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. Are any of those people still around the earth? Anybody talk to Lazarus last week? Okay, so what happened to Lazarus? He died. We don't know what, it doesn't tell us after he rose from a, you know, Jesus came and called him out. There was another time in his life when he went back into that same tomb. Okay? Because Jesus healed physically for a moment. When Jesus left and the Holy Spirit came, he had raised again from the dead. He sent the Holy Spirit to us that we could speak and communicate to people who are not just physically on their way to death, but who are spiritually already dead. And as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, as we lead them to a place where they can accept the forgiveness and love that comes from Jesus, when they accept that forgiveness and love, they are raised spiritually to life, but not life that will ever end, but eternal life forevermore. And so the work that you do if you lead your neighbor to Christ in allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you to do that is greater than the work that Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, we don't like we don't think of it that way because we think, man, like dude was wrapped up. They had to unwrap him. He's walking out of the grave. And so the question that I've been asking over the last few weeks as I've been thinking again about this verse about every year, God just kind of brings this verse back to me. And I just sometimes I just go, I don't even want to deal with that because I don't want to think about the, the implications or ramifications of what that would mean for us. But I've been asking, OK, what would it look like for us as a church to do even greater works? And as I was reading this week, I saw this and I just I loved what it said because it's a belief I have about the church, a belief I think is grounded in Scripture. One one author said greater work begins with the church on the move. You see, at its beginning, the church was intended to be a movement, a movement built around a conviction, a conviction that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, died for my sins, died for you, died for the sins of the world, raised again from the dead on the third day, and that we are to proclaim that to the world in order that they might come to salvation in him. 
In fact, if you were reading your Bible and you come across the word church, uh, know that that word in the original language, we've talked about this in the past, is a word that is a Greek word, ekklesia. You don't have to worry about the Greek word. But the Greek word means to be called out for a specific purpose. To be called out for a reason. To be called out for a purpose. And so anytime you see the word church, what you really ought to implement there is this group of people called out for a specific purpose began to speak and to teach about the gospel of Jesus Christ. During uh, the history of the church, that word kind of got changed and it went from ecclesia, a group of people called out for the purpose of sharing Christ, to in the Middle Ages, it went to a word called kirche, which we get church from, which meant a place to gather for a meeting. So technically a church went from a movement called out from God to do things to tell people about Jesus to a place to meet and to talk about God. And then about 500 years ago, almost exactly a group of guys got together and said, that's not what the church is. In fact, there was one guy that was really kind of adamant about this. And I got a picture of him right here. He's a really handsome fellow there, right? This guy's named William Tyndall, all right? How many of you have a Bible with you today? Let me see him. Hold him up, all right? On your phone, anywhere. Got one? All right. If you have a Bible today, one of the people you ought to be most thankful for, for that Bible, is this guy. William Tyndall was a guy that said that, you know, when this church became a place where people gathered to talk about stuff, when they came to talk about stuff in his time, the only people that talked about stuff were the people who were the ministers and the priests that the church paid to do the stuff. And William Tyndall said, no, no, no. If we're going to be people that are doing what God wants us to do, everybody needs a Bible and everybody needs to be a part of the movement. In fact, when he translated, he is the credited with being the first guy to instigate and see almost to completion a English version of the Bible translated for common people. When he got to the word ecclesia, he didn't translate it church. He translated it with a word that meant a movement of God's people. And his translation made the people that were in charge really, really upset. In fact, they got so upset with him, they told him to stop doing it. He said, I'm not going to stop doing it. I'm not going to stop translating. I'm going to get it to people. And they said, we're going to arrest you. And he said, I don't care. Arrest me. And they arrested him. They said, you got to stop doing it. He was still working on it in jail. They said, you stop doing it or we're going to do something about it. He said, you're going to have to do something about it. And so they put him up to trial and they said, what do you want to do about this? And he looked at him and said, y'all do what you got to do. My goal is if God lets me live long enough that the plowboy out in the fields will know more about the Bible than you. That's not what you say when you want to get off, right? Like to the judge, you don't say, hey, dude, you're cool, but no. And so they hung him and burned him at the stake. I guess they wanted to make sure it was done. And he said, as his life's dying wish was that God would open the eyes of a king to allow the church to be able to have the Bible for themselves. Here's kind of an interesting thing, all right? Anybody know like the most popular and the first big English translation of the Bible? Not Tyndall's, but like big widespread. Anybody remember what that was? Some people say that's all we should still use, right? It's the King James Version, the KJV. All right? Anybody want to know the king he prayed for as he's dying? King James. Now here's the deal. His whole reason for that was that God's people had settled for church as a place you came and sat and listened instead of the fact that the church is a movement of God that goes forward. Every generation, every family, every individual 
is in danger of allowing the church to become a place you come and meet instead of a place that we are part of a movement. And what I want to do today, and over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what does even greater look like. We're going to be leading towards an event that's going to happen in September. I'll tell you about that a little bit later. But I want to say, what does it look like to be even greater? I want to tell you something about this little symbol here. This is not original with me at all. This is actually the new symbol of the North American Mission Board. They don't know I stole it. Y'all don't tell them. All right. Uh, But I love it because I didn't understand what it meant. It looked like, okay, that's three lines. That's really, you know, awesome. Glad you changed your spent lots of money on that. All right. But then I heard it explained what it is. And they said, this is are the pews of the church. And that as the pews of the church, we begin to be motivated to move outward. And as we do, what we do together becomes greater. So i like, awesome. I'm going to steal it from them and use it for this series, all right? But here's the idea. We want to be part of the movement. And to do that, today I want to look at kind of the launch of the movement. You realize that, um, you know, one of my favorite things uh, growing up, too, was watching the space shuttle launches. You know, you'd watch them count down five, four, three, two, one launch. And you'd hear all that talking in between, you know, and uh, boosters ready to go, all that. And they'd fire. But at some point, somebody had to push. And I just imagine it's probably not. I just imagine that in the control room in Houston, there's one guy sitting in from a huge red button. That says launch on it, you know, and they're like all systems ready to go. Three, two, one, launch. And some guy goes, and like, there it goes, right? Now, you know, it probably doesn't happen that way, but that's just what I imagine it. Somebody has to push the button to say launch and to go. And so we're going to look today at that moment when the church launched. And this is the question I want to ask. Are we as a church a part of the movement that started in this day, or are we just doing ministry and running an institution? And are you as an individual... For you, is church just a place you attend, or is it a movement that you are a part of? Now we're going to look at where it started, and what we have to realize is, where it started is here in Acts chapter 1, but where it goes is that there are some billions of people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ today. Billions. No matter what you read on the news about other things coming and gaining and all of that, it is still the fastest growing worldwide and the largest religious group in the world. And it started with 11 guys on a hillside in Acts chapter 1. Look at Acts chapter 1. If you've got it, if not, it's up on the screen. Acts chapter 1, it says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. So Luke is writing this. The first narrative he wrote is the book of Luke. And so it's nice that it's there together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You skip over John, you get to Acts, right? So he wrote Luke, and then that's volume 1. Volume 2 is Acts. And this is what's interesting to me. He says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, one loved by God or one that loves God, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Now, here's what's interesting to me about that particular phrase. In about seven or eight verses, Jesus is gone. What we're going to read is about his ascending into heaven. He's gone. And yet Luke says, this is about what Jesus began to do. Like Luke was what he began to do. If they meant that Luke isn't what he began to do, then Acts ought to be what he continued to do. After he given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Next verse. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is kind of, in case you missed it, here's what's happened last week on the episode. 
Like, just in case you missed it, Jesus died, rose again from the grave, appeared to him over 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was together with him, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This is what you heard from me, he said. John baptized with water, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And the disciples asked the question that was on their minds and on their hearts. And here's the question. So when they had come together, they said, Lord, are you about to restore the kingdom? <laughs> is this it? Like, like we kept thinking it was coming and then you got killed and we thought it's over. And then you came back from the grave. And we're like, it's coming. And then we've been here 40 days. Now you're talking about leaving. Is this it? Are, are we ready? Is this, are, are we ready to get our swords? Are we ready to go back into Jerusalem? Are we ready to kick the Romans out? Is the kingdom coming now? And Jesus says to him, it's not for you to know times or periods that the father has set by his own authority. He says, listen, guys, he did this all the time with him. He didn't answer with a straight answer. He said, you don't need to worry about that. And let me just say this. This is a side note. This is free. No charge today. All right. Um, Jesus tells the guys that were closest to him, the 11 guys closest to him, when they ask him about the end of the world, he says, you don't need to know that. Like, you don't need to worry about that. Don't worry about the end times. Don't worry about what's happening at the end. You just be faithful now doing what you're supposed to do. Sometimes people here at the church get mad at me for not talking more about end times prophecy, all that kind of stuff. Here's what I figure. If God didn't see fit to entrust Peter and James and John with what was going to happen at the end, he probably is not calling on me next. So I don't need charts and graphs and... I don't think he's given televangelists special dispensation about what's happening over the next couple of years. And the reason is, is because if we focus on that, we lose what we ought to be doing. And there's no better example of that than this, where they say, is this it? When's it going to happen? Jesus says, don't worry about that. I got a job for you. Don't worry about that. If you worry about that, you won't do your job. Do your job. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. In just a few days it's coming. And when it comes, you'll receive power. And you will be my witnesses. Not you could be, or you might ought to be, or here's an option for you. Or if you would like to take this as the next step, here's a choice for you. He says, you will be my witnesses. And the truth is, he's not saying you have a choice about it. Because if you're a follower of Jesus in this time or today, you are his witnesses in the world. You're it. In Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Next verse. And after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. We completely miss how weird this is. Right? Because Jesus just goes, hey guys, small task for you. Here it is. Okay, don't worry about when the end time's coming. Here's all I need you to do. You 11 guys, I need you to tell everybody in the world about me. That's it. See you later. And he starts to rise. Never has a bigger task been given to more unqualified people. Right? Who are we talking about here? Oh, they're the disciples. They're apostles. Who were they? They were fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. They were just normal guys. He's like, listen, I need you to get the whole world. Just get it all. See ya. I'm gone. And as they're standing there, and I'm sure as they're looking up, their mouths are like on the ground, like, what? And their angels start to descend to them. Like, what in the world is happening here? All right. Next verse. Two men in white clothes stood by them and they said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking at the heaven? Why do we stand here looking at the heaven? A dude just flew. Like, what? What do you mean? Why do we stand here looking at heaven? This Jesus has been taken from you will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. 
And from that moment, a launch begins that would lead to the moment where you're sitting, where you're sitting right now here today. And the question that I ask is, so what was what was unique or what was different or what caused them to do that? And two things and then we're done today. First of all, this. They were able to do what God called them to do because the message had completely captured their hearts and minds. They were completely convinced of the truth of the gospel. That this Jesus that they had seen, that they had witnessed, that they had been a part of, was not just another prophet. He was not just another way. He was not just another man. He was not one of many good men. He was not just a good teacher. He was the Son of God. He was God Himself. And that when they crucified Him, when we crucified Him, they were convinced that their rebellious act of killing God incarnate on the planet was ironically the sacrifice that he came to give. Our murder was his sacrifice. And that he was raised from the dead three days later. And if that all was true, which they firmly believed to be the fact, if Jesus Christ was not just another prophet, but the God himself who came to us, died for our sins, and rose again from the grave, it was the most important message that has ever been given in the history of the world. And that there weren't other ways to get to heaven or to get to God except through Jesus. In fact... Um, they had seen and witnessed what Jesus had talked about in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they were convinced that if there had been another way, then God would have given him another way. Remember, Jesus said, if there is any other way, take this cup. And no answer. To the point that in Acts 4.12, the apostles say that there is no name under heaven by which men might be saved except for the name of Jesus. And as they looked at that story and they're convinced of the truth of the gospel, then they know that God gave his life for them and they have determined that they are willing to give everything they have to let people know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the only way to heaven. That he should be worshipped throughout every nook and cranny of the entire world. That everyone should know who he is, no matter who they are or no matter what they've done, because Jesus has come for us. And they could not stop talking about it because they were convinced of the truthfulness of it. To the point that when the Sanhedrin called Peter, John, before them and said, Hey guys, could y'all just do us a favor and quit talking about this Jesus? Because if you don't stop talking, we're going to have to do some serious stuff to you. And they look at them and they say, You do what you got to do. We cannot stop talking about Jesus. I mean, they are convinced that their life has been radically transformed. What about you? I'm not talking about growing up in a church and listening to someone tell you how to be a good little boy or a good little girl and thinking that being a good little boy or a good little girl means that you've got to walk down an aisle and tell a preacher that you want to be a good little boy and a good little girl and that means that you have to tell them that you know something about Jesus and you get dunked in some water. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is life Altering a knowledge of the Son of God giving His life for you and giving everything He has to bring you into a relationship with God. The message had captured their hearts and their minds and they could not stop talking about Him. I've used this illustration uh, before, I think. Um, 
It's been nine years. I forget sometimes, right? There's a story told, and I, I love the, the, the imagery here. There's a story told of a guy who was uh, driving late one night out on the West Coast. And, um, and as he was like one o'clock in the morning, he was out on the road. And as he's driving, his headlights, he notices on the bridge coming up ahead, his headlights hit something kind of weird. And he, he thinks something's wrong with the bridge. And so he stops for a minute and, and he pulls over to the side of the road and he walks up there and realizes that the, the part of the bridge has collapsed. He sits there and thinks for a minute, oh, thank you for the fact that I didn't go over the bridge. Just kept going. That would have been really, really bad. And so he gets out and then he notices as he's starting to get back in his car and he's going to turn around and, and go back the other way that there are some headlights coming. And he's like, I got to let this guy know. I got to, I got to do something. And so he starts to stand by his car and wave his hands, has his lights on and starts to yell, hey, bridge is out. Bridge is out. The man in the car. Apparently thinking this guy's just a lunatic, plows straight ahead, right over, falls through the bridge. You think, man, that didn't work very well. Another car comes, he, same thing. Bridge is out! He's a little more demonstrative. He's a little more, he's, he's flailing his arms a little bit more. Guy doesn't pay attention. Drives right off. As he looks up, he realizes that the next set of headlights are a little bit taller and that the vehicle's a little bit bigger and he realizes for a moment it's a bus. And he said, I don't know how many people were on that bus. I don't know what was happening. But I determined that standing on the sidelines yelling at them was not going to do anything for them. So as the bus got closer, he jumped out in front of the bus, put his arms out wide and said, stop. And as the bus came to a screeching halt in front of him, somebody asked him, didn't you know you could be killed or seriously hurt? Why did you do that? He said, when I realized the number of people on that bus, I thought I got to do whatever it takes to make sure they don't go over the edge. The apostles were people that said, We have to do whatever it takes to make sure these people don't go over the edge into an eternity without God. You don't believe that they did whatever it took. Every single one of them ended up imprisoned. And all but one was killed for his belief in Jesus Christ. Here's the true test, all right? I'm not... not, not, the guy that wants to be here and go, what would you say if someone stuck a gun to your head and said, do you believe in Jesus? All right. But the true test is when it's not advantageous for you or it's not good for you or it could hurt you. It could hurt your family. It could hurt your wealth. It could hurt your standing. It could hurt your reputation to claim Jesus Christ. What would you do? Has it captured your heart and your mind? Because until it gets to the point that it has captured your heart and mind to that level, then you won't be the one that can't stop talking about Jesus. I know sometimes there's there's a lot of kind of fear-mongering among Christians right now about what would happen if she gets elected or he gets elected. and What would happen with Supreme Court and the laws that would be made? And it's going to be a terrible... What's it going to be like? And here's what I'll tell you. I, I don't have any clue, okay? I don't... Only God knows what the election's going to hold. Only God knows what's going to happen in our country. It does seem that the trend is not friendly towards believers. I mean, just as we look at it honestly. And my commitment to you is, if it ever becomes the thing that it's not right or good to talk about Jesus in a public way, like a place like this, that's not going to stop me from talking about Jesus in a public way. And here's the thing. I'm not chicken little. I don't think the sky's falling. I don't think the cops are coming in um, uh, December 1st after the election and they're coming to get us. But I will tell you this. It's for the first time in my life in November, uh, we're going to talk about how do you live as a persecuted Christian.
to learn the example from people from the past and possibly to prepare ourselves for what could be coming. And the question is, has the message of Jesus Christ so captivated your heart, your mind, your soul that you say, listen, if that means I lose my business, if that means I lose my house, if that means I lose my reputation, you do what you got to do. I'm going to serve Jesus. The first thing is the message had captured their hearts and their minds. The second thing is this. The apostles yielded themselves to the leadership of the Spirit. Again, it's one of the strangest scenes in the New Testament. After laying on the Great Commission, he leaves. But it tells us that he had begun to do the work in the book of Luke. And that now he would do the work through his church. In fact, began in that first verse implies continuation. It's not that the gospel of Luke is Jesus worked. And the God, and then the book of Acts is how the church worked. But Jesus worked in his fleshly body. And now in Acts, he works through his body, spiritual body, the church in Acts. He has invited the church not to do it for him but that he does it now through them. In fact, he tells them in Acts 1.8 to wait, to stop, to go hold up until the Holy Spirit comes. And in every chapter of Acts, you get this sense that the church is simply doing what the Spirit of God is calling them to do. They're going where it says to go. They're acting what he says to act. They're speaking what the Spirit says to speak. Now what happens at the end of the book of Acts, the Spirit leads the church on and on. And you get to Acts chapter 28. And at the end of the Acts chapter 28, it ends in a cliffhanger. Paul has gone to Rome to preach the gospel, but he ends up in prison. Is he going to preach? What happens to Paul? We don't know. It just cuts off. And the reason for that is because God intends for us to understand that just as the book of Luke is where Jesus began to work, that the book of Acts is a continuation of that, but it's still just the beginning. We were, we were actually talking last night at dinner, and uh, um, we were around the table talking. Uh, we were with uh, Rick and Deb and, and Bill Towns. We were having supper together and talking about some, some plans for a Sunday school class and some things happening in the next month. And uh, we were talking about one of the conferences I went to. I went to a conference on Thursday, Friday, Opperland Hotel. One of the speakers was a guy named Matt Chandler. And he is the president of the Acts 29 network. And Susan said, there is no Acts 29. Like, no, there's not. And like, why do you name something that there's no biblical reference for? And the Acts 29 network is there because it says, we are Acts 29. We are the continuation of the story of Christ. And throughout Scripture, what you see is when the Holy Spirit comes, it leads people to engage people that need to know Jesus and engages them to speak. Gives them the power. Listen to this. In Luke's writing, this is just Luke's writing. Whenever the Spirit comes, he fills them with the Spirit to proclaim the good news of God. Luke one fifteen, John the Baptist being filled with the Spirit proclaims the coming of the Lord. Luke one forty one, Elizabeth being filled with the Spirit proclaimed blessing over Mary. Luke one sixty seven, Zechariah being filled with the Spirit prophesied about the coming glory of Jesus. Acts two four, the Holy Spirit fills the apostles at Pentecost. They declare God's praises, and Peter steps out and preaches a message about the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts four eight, Peter is filled with the Spirit preaches to the rulers that Jesus is their only hope of salvation. Acts four thirty one, the disciples are filled with the Spirit. They speak the Word of God boldly in the face of severe persecution. Acts 9.20, Paul is filled with the Spirit. He immediately begins to preach in the synagogues. You get the picture. God's Spirit fills and then they speak. If we're going to be a church that does the even greater works that God has promised, then we're going to be a church that's on the move. 
And that means that we will interact with, talk to, and invite people to an understanding of who Jesus is. If you care about people, if you care about Christ, then you'll be one that's a part of the movement of God of telling others about him. You'll be a part of the church here as we come together to be encouraged to move out and to spread the word of God. You'll be a part of your community where you're interacting with people that are far from God and people that have stopped being a part of the movement of God. And every single one of us should have one person that we are praying for to come to know Jesus. In fact, what I'm going to ask you to do, and this is one form of the application today, and we're going to talk about a couple other things in a minute, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to think in your mind of the one person in your life that needs to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Not five, not ten, not fifteen, not twenty. One. One person in your life that needs to know Jesus. Coworker, friend, relative, child, grandchild. One person. I want you to just think of that person. I, I, you know, for some of you it came immediately. Like I know that. For some of you, you realize you don't know any. And that's not a good thing. Like, whoo, all my friends are Christians. That's good. That means you're not in the community and in the world where Christ has called you to be a witness for him. And I want you to begin to pray that God will give you an opportunity to invite them to church and to share with them the gospel of Jesus. Specifically by name, I want you to begin to pray for them. Maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior. You don't even really understand what that means. You just know that you feel like your life is that car on that bridge that is hurtling towards a bridge that is out, that you're going over the edge. And you need to know how to stop. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And I'm just going to ask you, if that's you in that moment, that you would come and respond at that time. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, I I want to be part of a church that's a movement. And you talk today, that's what I want to be. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of, of helping to be a part of taking the gospel, of talking to people about Jesus. Then this is the place where God's calling me to do it. I want to do it right here, right now. I'll be here. I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe it's that you need to take the next step in your walk of faith, that you've never been baptized, or you haven't been baptized since you were saved, and you want to do that right now. In just a moment, band's going to come back up. We're going to play a couple of songs. We're going to give you time to respond to what the Lord has spoken to you today. And I'm just going to ask you to do whatever he calls you to do. Let's pray together.